You're listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. So today we have with us Brett Lesperance, CEO of Dauntless Air, a US-based company. Dauntless Air is the largest US operator of the Firebus aircraft, which provide initial attack of fire suppression for wildfires. So given the uh, bushfire season here in Australia, I thought it would take a slightly different tact um, in this episode and we'd look at sort of how technology and what's happening outside of Australia in terms of assisting in fighting bushfires. To give you some context, today in December 2019, uh, in New South Wales we have about 98 uh, bushfires across uh, New South Wales with 50 of them still to be contained. So thanks uh, so much, Brett, for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, happy to be here. Great to chat. Excellent. So why don't you uh, tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself and before, I guess, you got started at uh, Dauntless Air? Sure, sure. So most of the last 15 years of my life, I have 15 years of my professional life or so, I've been in the private equity industry, specifically oftentimes in the role of finding companies to buy, pulling off the transaction, and then ensuring that they're heading in the right direction. Sometimes these were turnarounds. Some of them were sometimes they're growth opportunities. But almost in every case, they were on the smaller end of the middle market, companies that had revenues from 20 to $400 million in that range. And, you know, the big part of any of these companies is, you know, regardless of the industry, it was always getting the, the people part of it right. Because yeah. you get the people part of it right, you tend to end up having a better chance of succeeding in general. So you know, over that time frame, it's probably been, you know, heavily involved in, 17, 18, maybe even 20 companies in that kind of role. Yeah, excellent. And what what, what made you be, uh, join Dauntless Air and become the, the CEO there? You know, it was I had been at Bain Capital for uh, almost, it was actually almost like straight up nine years. But, you know, it, that had been a great opportunity. I'd learned a lot, uh, still have a lot of connections there. But what I what I had missed in, uh, in the continuing to develop my skill set in the private equity world was was the operating experience that I'd had earlier in my career where, you know, I was running companies and growing them. And, uh, and this opportunity, you know, it sort of approached me, dug into the industry a little bit and came to find out that the opportunity within the industry I thought was pretty interesting. There was a growing problem as you guys are experiencing in Australia, yeah. as we're experiencing here in the States, that I uh, think the right platform, the right tactic and the right approach we could, we could alter or slow down that challenge. And I didn't see that there was a lot of dynamic thinking that had been applied to the problem in the States and that, you know, we might be able to tackle that challenge. And, and just to cl- clarify how I, how I jumped into it, uh, I had turned around a helicopter operator in the Gulf of Mexico while I was at Bain Capital. So I'd gotten my feet wet in the aviation space in a yeah, seven-year okay. stint, turning that business around. I ran it for a little bit of time, but hired a team to, to run it for time and uh, had learned all, all the all the things not to do when you're writing an aviation company. So I've been prepared. Yeah, right. Excellent. And so tell us a little bit about uh, Dauntless Air and sort of what, what, what you guys do. So Dauntless Air is based in Minnesota. We, um, we have 13 aircraft, 12 of which are the Fireboss aircraft, which is air tractor fuselage and combined with whip air floats and a fantastic Pratt & Whitney engine. And we provide aerial firefighting services to states and the federal entities here in the United States, all across the western part of, uh, of the United States, uh, Alaska as well. And in more and more these days, states 
like Texas, who haven't used fire bosses in the past that are. Uh, <clears throat> we are about 60, 65 people in the middle of the fire season in total team. Yeah, right. And, um, you know, I, I think what is unique about the business is that we are very specific to the platform we're utilizing. We don't have helicopters. We don't have large air tankers. We try to stay focused, much like the old Southwest Airlines business model, where it's stay focused on one platform that provides a fantastic value to the customer in both water dropping capability as well as cost and, and promote that. So that's that's where we focus our efforts. Yeah, okay. And how does it compare sort of in a different way to say using use of helicopters or other aircraft? Yeah, so hel- actually helicopters and, and, and fire bosses actually work very well together. And just to paint the picture, as you might imagine, and you guys are seeing quite a few aircraft in your own uh, skies right now, yeah. there are a wide variety of different types of aircraft. You have large air tankers, which are typically multi-engines. You've got you know, fire bosses like our aircraft. You've got wheeled aircraft, single-engine aircraft that are air tractors that you know just drop one load of retardant at a time. And then you have a variety of large helicopters. Uh, that's, of course, these sky cranes and such, all the way down to the smaller bells. But we really think about the, the, the part of the, the fleet or the portfolio part of the portfolio of aerial firefighting aircraft as either scooping or uh, or picking up with Bambi buckets or to some extent. So in both cases, the helicopters and the fire boss need to find scoopable water or a source of water where they can either drop a bucket into it or, you know, drop a hose in and suck the water up into the fuselage. And the fire boss will, you know, needs to find a, a larger body of water because it lands on the water for about 15 seconds, scoops up 800 gallons of water and takes off and goes back to the, the fire at hand. So th- we think that type of aircraft is very unique because, you know, you never need to go back to a base to reload retardants yeah, okay. or water. Typically, you know, retardant is what most people are using, but you can leave the base and one of our fire bosses go out for a three and a half to four hour fuel cycle and never have to go back to the base to load up again. And that allows you to stay close to the fire and, you know, comparing the cost of the, the DC-10, which you guys have down there, yep. 10 Tanker provides that. It's a great company, great aircraft, uh, plays a very specific role, but one fire boss can drop as much or more water in an hour as a, as a DC-10 can at about one-eighth to one-tenth the cost. Yeah, right. It's because we can continue to go back and forth. And, and for states who struggle here in, the, in this country, in the United States, to find the, you know, find the budget to contract with uh, large air tanker providers or large helicopter providers, companies like ours that have the fire boss provide a product that is you know, cheap enough, yet uh, firefighting effective enough that it makes sense for them. Yeah, interesting. And uh, does it always have to be fresh water or can it be salt water that can be picked up? No, it can be salt water. Quite often when we're in Alaska and we're working the, along the coast, we'll scoop salt water. It requires a you know, different cleanout process at the end of every day and Obviously, you'd like to avoid saltwater corrosion as much as you can, but yeah. you know, oftentimes that will be the closest water source, and that's where we're gonna we're gonna pull from. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And how do you see sort of uh, fighting fires today versus what was done sort of 10, 20 years ago? Is it is there much difference in terms of that? Yes. Yeah. There is. You know, it. I've uh, I've you know now been in the industry here about three years, and I have I've become uh, close with a wide variety of folks who have been fighting this challenge for decades. And in some of these, some of these, most of the folks that I've run into are, are somewhere based in California or the West. Uh, and I was, uh, I've become uh, quite friendly with the former fire chief uh, for Santa Barbara County in California. Great guy, 33 years, 
in the business. Uh, he retired a few years back. And, and I called him last year to catch up over the holidays, just about this time to say hello. And he had been pulled back in to, um, to work the Mendocino complex fire in California. And this is a guy who's usually very up and very chipper. And when I got him on the phone, he was, I could sense a, a, some frustration in his voice. And, uh, I, I said, you know, help me understand that, Pat. And he said, I got to tell you this, Brett. He says, two decades ago, you know, me and my colleagues, we felt like, you know, every time we, we took on a wildfire, there was a chance to win the fight. You know, you, you, it was sort of fun. And oftentimes we did win the battle to get ahead of a fire. But he says, these, you know, the fires we're seeing today in the last five or 10 years, it's just an entirely different animal. Our forests here are now set up in a way that they've become tinderboxes. And we don't win the, bite, the, the battles anymore. We don't win the fights. And he says, you know, his point was more often than not, we're just trying to contain it, yeah. corral it, and make sure, you know, as few people as possible get hurt or killed. But he was really, you know, frustrated. And unfortunately, while the the fire environment has become much more challenging, and, and the, this fire beast that, that we're battling here in the States is a different beast than it was two decades ago, you know, not every, not every fire agency in the United States is responding in a way to adapt to it. You know, the Forest Service, you know, you, I don't want to call them into question. They provide a great service, but there's there still is a mindset there, you know, fighting these fires like we did 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And, and Cal Fire, you know, the, the California Fire Agency, again, which is a great organization, go talk to a handful of folks in California and ask them how how happy they are with the response times in, in California um, from Cal Fire. And they're not they're, they're not happy either. So there are states in, in this country that are doing very progressive things. Washington State is. Idaho is, as well as Alaska, because people have become real frustrated and tired of the old way of doing things. And they've, they've, you know, decided to approach wildfire mitigation and containment in a different way. And it's working. Yeah. Right. So that's what I try to continue to push. Uh, And uh, it's changing because it has to, you know, I, I joke sometimes, unfortunately, sort of dark humor with folks in California. When I go to Washington, DC, I talk to Congress people, in in dc from um from the state of california i say if we don't change the game in california california will be a beautiful national park in two decades It'll be a great place to mountain bike and jog but you won't be able to get electricity or insurance to uh to have a home there yeah right and so what what, what do you think's changed to to make the sort of wildfires um, a lot worse wide variety of things it boils down to i guess a, a couple you know before coming into this industry i wasn't a climate change denier or supporter you know, I think all of us see that the world has changed. You know, the years are hotter, summers are hotter, yeah. relative humidity points are lower than they ever were before. You know, when I was, before I jumped into the, you know, into running the company, a lot of the research I did was, you know, what what is happening to the fire season? Fire season today in the United States is three months longer than it was in the early 80s. So you've got this, this weather event, regardless of how it's been driven, that is creating hotter longer summers, drier summers. And and you tie that into the way that many forests in the United States have been managed, where for, for much of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, there was there was a battle between, you know, the idea of cutting forests down, you know, to, for, for timber, uh, for, for, you know, for home building and such, and, you know, in wood, wood consumption in general, you know, that, that interest um, banged heads right up against the environmentalists 
interest of saving every tree in the in the forest and it became a state-by-state state thing to a great extent but the forests were let you know they were able to grow into a very sort of you know it, it's a it's a congested very tight forest in, in a lot of spots here in the united states now where if you you walk into the forest it's hard to walk through the forest unless there's a trail because trees have been able to grow so close to each other and when you look up to the sky you really can't see it in a lot of the forests here in the united states because it's a very congested canopy. Yeah, okay. And so when that so canopy becomes very dry and very hot, and you start, you know, you get a you get a fire start from a lightning strike or something a mile away, it gets to the canopy, and you've got a 20 knot or 25 knot wind blowing this direction. It really is like a matchbook. You flip open the end of the matches, you light one end, and you just see that the you know the flame tear across to the other side of the matchbook, and that that replicates itself pretty quickly here in a, in, a, in a typical season. Yeah, right. So in the in the aircrafts that you run, sort of what sort of technology are you using sort of to assist and how important is sort of speed of um, getting to that, that fire location? Yeah, so it's, uh, as I, I explained earlier, the, the, the uniqueness of the aircraft and its ability to scoop and go you know, back and forth to the fire very quickly is, is probably what gives us 75 or 80% of our benefit, quite honestly, you know, to be able to get to a fire at 140 to 150 knots, um, you scoop that scoop very quickly, get back to the fire, drop the load and continue to do so, you know, for three and a half hours, that, that, that technology alone, you know, based on the inherent design of the aircraft is probably 75, 80% of the value or the benefit of the aircraft. We've taken a real innovative approach doing everything we can to upgrade the aircraft in a way that allows it to be that much more effective. We use a, an aftermarket fire gate, which actually holds the water that we drop. And that, that's 300 pounds lighter than the, uh, the manufacturer's gate. Okay. So that allows us to carry that much more water. We also have infrared on all of our aircraft, which allows uh, our pilots to see, see the hot spots before they drop. Oftentimes where the smoke is coming from when you're looking down on a fire isn't exactly where the hot spot is. Uh, or the current flames are, and oftentimes the the ground crews are asking us to, you know, what do you see? Can you make sure you put it right on the uh, right on the the leading edge of the fire? So it's a it's a, it allows us to be that much more accurate with our drops, but it also is a safety measure for our pilots because oftentimes, as you, you might imagine, you're flying low and slow, not that uh, you know, with with at about 100 110, 120 knots, uh, you're flying through a smoke-filled environment, so the infrared camera allows our pilots to see the fire better drop more accurately as all but also be safer flying in and out of that space the other thing we've added to our aircraft the ability to do onboard mixing of different water enhancers so you know that's also unique to our fireboss fleet we can inject it's actually it's an australian-based company it's a product called blaze tamer i forget the name of the parent company okay. but they make a very effective water enhancer that can carry enough of it in a concentrated form in the aircraft and for almost 20 complete scoops which is you know which which is a good chunk of our of our of our fuel cycle three and a half three three and a half hours or so we can put in just enough of that blaze tamer every time we drop a load um, that actually helps keep water it helps make water more effective it helps keep water cooler on the on the on the trees and the bush of the you know on the ground longer and cooler and it's pretty effective product so that capability is used by some of the states here in the united states some um, others decide not to use it but those two things the infrared and the onboard gel mixing combined with a lighter gate 
allows our aircraft to be that much more effective. And, and we're always assessing what is the next great technology we could add to the aircraft. And there is a lot of that, a lot of new technology out there when it comes to early detection abilities that we're thinking about adding to the aircraft in the years to come. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And how do you get like alerted if there's a fire that you've got to go to? How do you get what? I'm sorry. Uh, alerted to knowing that there's a fire that's just just occurred. Oh yeah. So oftentimes, you know, um, we'll be positioned um, in a state. You know, there's a variety of different. We, we can work from any base that has a 2,500 foot runway or more, which is which is a lot of different air bases. But oftentimes, you know, we are contracted by the state or the federal ag- fire agency and told to be. We need you here. You know, we think this is going to be one of the more fire-prone areas of of this state. And there are, you know, there's a variety of new detection technologies out there that the Forest Service and others are using where they see these fire starts. Oftentimes, you know, there'll be uh, electric lightning overnight, and that'll start a variety of fires the next day. Oftentimes, they try to suppress the fires earlier in the day with, with ground troops because that's when the wind is typically not as bad. But oftentimes, if they can't, you know, they can't suppress it completely uh, and the wind picks up, that's when they start bringing the air, you know, the different type of aircraft in. The request will come from an incident commander who's working a fire and he will decide what kind of assets he'd like to have uh, on the fire for that, that day's effort. And he will bring in helicopters and request large air tankers and fire bosses. And in some cases, those, those assets are in the area and they'll, you know, we'll get a dispatch to go to the fire. In some cases, they're not in the area, and he'll say, well, what else? Or she'll say, yeah, okay. he or she will say, what else can we get? So it's, it, it's a pretty quick process once they decide, you know, that they want to bring in certain types of aircraft. The incident commander gets a hold of the dispatcher, and there's typically an aircraft manager at every base. And that dispatcher, you know, that dispatch will go to that, that base manager, and pretty quickly that gets sent to our pilots at that base to respond to a certain fire at a certain location. And we try to be, you know, at the end of the runway um, at, in four minutes and off the ground at six wow. to respond to a fire. And, we're, you know, depending how far we have to run, you know, we're typically on a fire within the first 30 or 40 minutes of being called. Yeah, right. Wow. And, and that's very, very, very important to, yeah. to help slow down any fire. Yeah, okay. Yeah, excellent. And what does it look like in terms of cost of, like, people hiring the, the, the planes? So it, it's, you know, it, every, every aircraft has a different cost profile, but our, you know, our, our pricing, again, I'm, I'm slightly biased, but if you look, if you look at a, you know, a large air tankers, you know, the ones that are dropping a little retardant, the, the ones that, you know, look like commercial air, they are commercial airliners that have been converted into, into firefighting aircraft. Those aircraft can, you know, there, there's two things that, two ways we get paid. We get paid for having an aircraft they're on the ground ready to respond and we get paid for every hour we fly. And those large air tankers oftentimes will be anywhere from 20 to $30,000 a day just to have it sitting there um, ready to go. And the flight time is anywhere between, you know, $12,000 per hour and you know $20,000 per hour, depending on what the aircraft is. So it's not cheap um, as you, as you can see, but we, you know, a lot of the cost that 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 is um, is in those in those revenue rates is, you know, the the cost of the asset, which is not cheap. Uh, the cost of the pilots, the cost of the fuel, cost of the mechanics and ground ground crews. So it's it's an expensive um, it's an expensive endeavor to to hire those large air tankers and oftentimes the larger helicopters. 
at our end of the spectrum where, you know, we've got smaller aircraft, they're single engine, they're, they're less costly to purchase. They're relatively, I won't call it simple, but they're the complexity of a fire boss compared to the complexity of a 737 are very different type of um, uh, aircraft to manage. So we are able to price our aircraft to somewhere in the, you know, $4,500 a day and $4,500 an hour uh, range which, you know, uh, you can see where the, the cost yeah, right. add up pretty quickly. You know, and that's, in my mind, that's a very appropriate value to the customer. It also allows us to run our business, you know, in a manner where we can hire and retain really talented pilots and crew chiefs and mechanics and keep them in our business. You know, as, as, as you may be experiencing in Australia, we're definitely experiencing here in the United States, the three main employee types, team member types that we hire here in the States are pilots, mechanics, and crew chiefs, which are typically, you know, uh, over the road, you know, large, heavy truck operators, you know, pilots in this country are in high demand. So we've got to make sure we are hiring and, you know, paying those folks correctly. Mechanics are in high demand in this country, as well as over the road truckers. And so challenging buckets of employees to, to recruit and hold on to, but feel like we're doing it in a way that is keeping people here for the long term yeah makes sense makes sense and you think you you think about those costs and you think about the cost of the damage that the, the bushfires are doing to, to properties and all sorts of things it yeah. sounds um significantly cheaper than the cost of all the destruction that the bushfires do we it, it's you know you, i oftentimes i'm frustrated here in the states because you can ask a, you can ask a, a 12 year old child what's the better way to put out a a, a fire you know, is it easier to to dump a five gallon five gallon bucket of water on on a small fire at, at your feet that is with you know a few inches in, in in diameter, or is it you know is it easier to wait a while, take that same five gallon bucket and wait for the fire to be you know 30, 30, 30 meters by thirty meters? Absolutely. And, and, and the twelve year old will say, well, it's obvious. But if you ask certain fire agencies in this country. You know, it's it's not as obvious, and, and no no one wants the devastation to occur. No one yeah. wants people to lose their lives or their homes or their properties. But the way that we all decide to respond to fires is the real challenge. In in my mind, you know, and if you've seen any of the materials at our website, you know, it's all about response times. It's being able to identify a fire quickly and get on that fire as fast as possible, and to put out the fire as quickly as possible. And that's not every fire. You know, I, people say, well, you can't put out every fire, Brett. That, that'll just lead to the same challenges we're having in our forests already. And I agree. Fire is a, fire is a, is a naturally occurring event that is actually a, it promotes forest health over the long term. But what, I, what I'm trying to you know, change people's minds on is that it's not about you know, putting out every fire. You know, let, the, let the fires that will not harm people or harm property do what they do best. But unfortunately, these days, there's so many homes and properties and, and people living in this what we call the wildland yeah. urban interface yeah. that weren't living there, you know, two or three decades ago. They expect to be protected, and they should. And so those are unwanted, you know, those those are those are unwanted fires. Suppress them quickly, you know, put them put them out quickly, and then you can manage the the way you're going to sort of you're going to improve the health of that forest through prescribed burns and appropriate forest thinning. State of Washington has saved hundreds of millions of dollars per year and reduced significantly reduced devastation in their state because they have a policy of not letting any wildfire get to be larger than 10 acres uh, in size uh, and or suppressed in one day. And that that mind that mindset has shifted the last four seasons and they've moved to using fire bosses in the state 
And, you know, they, they burned almost a million acres in 2015. They spent almost $600 million. They lost three firefighters. They died, unfortunately. And, and they, they basically said, that, that's it. We're done. And they, they were fighting fires, what I call the old-fashioned way. Send, send ground crews to try to contain the fire. If that doesn't work, call in for the heavy, heavy large air tankers, and hopefully we can contain this fire and, and, and control it. It won't hurt anyone too badly. Well, that's just not working anymore. So now they, they basically see smoke, and they send two fire bosses and one of their state-owned helicopters, and they, you know, we leave the we leave the airbase loaded with water. We dump, you know, right when we get there, we start dumping water on the fire. We pummel it to a point that we can contain it, keep it cool, keep it small, and then the ground crews show up, and they actually put the fire out. And, you know, the, the planes rarely put the fire out; they just keep it smaller um, and keep it contained. And since that shift, since that horrible 2015 season, they are now spending somewhere between. 100 and 150 million dollars a year. They they're burning somewhere between 70,000 acres and uh, 150,000 acres a year. They've significantly reduced the stress on their wildland firefighters. They've been able to not only recruit firefighters but retain them because the job has become less taxing and dangerous than it was before. And you know the the real positive outcome is that the state has has you know has spent so much less on actually putting the fires out. They are now they now have the money in their budget to do the things that'll slow down the, you know, this wildfire threat, which is prescribed burns and, you know, appropriate forest thinning in the winter months. And they're making their, you know, their whole entire, you know, their, their state has become a much healthier forest environment because of this new strategy. And it's just, again, a very obvious response, you know, to this wildfire challenge and it's, it's progressive. And it's on the leading edge. I, I, the woman there who is the commissioner of public lands, a woman by the name of Hillary Franz, very smart, very dynamic, didn't know a lot about fire uh, before she got elected to, into the role in, the, in early 2016. But I met her a few summers ago and I said, boy, I really, really thank you for, for being so progressive. And she said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I told her the differences between the way she manages fire in her state and what other states manage it. And she said that 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 doesn't seem to make sense because in my mind, Brett, it you know, it makes dollars and cents, and it makes common sense to do it this way. Yeah. And I chuckled. I said, you know, I'd would lo love to take you to other states um, to to tell the tale. And and she's actually been helpful in that way. And, and we've worked together in, in meeting with other folks. But it's it's again, ask a twelve year old how to put a fire out, and they'll have the answer for you. But yeah, right. you know, I think as we get to be adults and bureaucracies grow to in a certain ways. We, um, we react to challenges uh, differently. It's a, it seems uh, so, so obvious. Why, why, why do you think people don't see it as obviously as, as that? I, I think, I think everyone sees that we've got a, ch a the, ch the challenge is different than it was, but I, I do think, you know, in a country like ours, right, you've got, you, we've been fighting fires with aircraft for three or four decades. And, and there's been a lot of money invested in the, the infrastructure to do so. You know, there is, you know, there are, there are roughly 30 large air tankers in the United States that fight fires every year, which is a relatively small number of yeah. aircraft, but they're expensive, you know? And so you, you know, using them the way we used to use them and continue to do so is we've got to continue to support that, that fleet. I also think there is a, there is, there, there are a lot of people who are very good at, you know, it being wildland firefighters in the, in the summer, right? When we have fire season here, that's their job. And so there's, 
there's you know tens of thousands of folks in this country that fight wildfires in the summer and if you there's a fear that i think if you respond to fires too quickly and put them out you might put those people out of work and i, I don't think that's entirely correct i think there are there are jobs that could you know these people could have year-round. We're not going to stop the fire yeah. fire threat yeah. altogether. I think we're going to change. We're going to change the way we fight it. But I, I just think we're we're up against you know sort of a lot of legacy um, uh, um, you know thinking that has been you know, this is the way we've been fighting fires for the last thirty years. It works. And and until you sort of flip the mindset there and you you, you look at the way that we've got to adapt to it, it's it's change is never easy, especially in, in, in government agencies. And so, you know, it's coming along, but it's coming along slowly. So I wish I had a, a good answer for you on that topic. But I do think there is a there's a labor component as well as a as a, as a asset sort of infrastructure component that if we change the way we've been fighting fires, guys, uh, we may need to change the reality of the situation we may not need certain types of aircraft as much as we do now we may need less people in the middle of the fire season fighting fires and that i think that that weighs on some folks decisions on how we do this yeah okay interesting and so i'm sure everyone's sort of wondering do you operate outside of the u.s can you come to australia <laughs> uh yeah uh we can we can come to australia um, um we can send our our aircraft over there and work work those fires and we we love to um we um how, how long we are would that, nafta registered how long would that take sorry so so you know as a single engine air tanker that cruises at about 140 knots is is at a disadvantage as compared to a 737 flying from the states yeah. to australia but um it can happen relatively quickly uh you know we were we weren't in direct conversations with uh, any Australian government officials, but we know some of the operators down there. Um, and you have a few fire boss operators down there for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so there's, I think there's, there's three or four, maybe five fire bosses in the country, but we know those guys well. And they asked us to get ready to ship the aircraft over there because your government fire agencies were in conversation with them, asking them, you know, what what else or what other aircraft may be out there that you get your hands on so we are ready to go it would think if we were given the green light you know in the next say tomorrow for instance we could probably be there within a week's time you know just to be safe uh, conservative conservative on that front probably not any faster but for sure within a week there is a bit of a challenge because we do end up flying the aircraft from california to hawaii to to where you guys are at a certain point in the winter the trade winds work against us and we, we the flight becomes more and more dangerous yeah so you know we're we're running up to get up against that in the next month or so and there are there are there are there are companies out there we wouldn't fly the aircraft ourselves there are guys out there who that's their job of getting you know getting single engine aircraft from, from uh, the united states to australia into into asia it's a, it's a risky business, and I'm glad those guys are out there. But we could be there within a week. Yeah, right. Awesome. Be. And so what advice happy to help. would you give to any sort of government uh, people in Australia sort of thinking about this or thinking about sort of what else they, they can do? And so from your experience and speaking with sort of some of the other yeah, states. So I, yeah, I, I haven't really studied how how folks in Australia, uh, the fire the, the fire agency, folks in Australia think about and react to fires. So I, you know, I don't know what you are and aren't doing. You know, I, I guess it would be, you guys also don't, I don't think you can tell me otherwise you guys have the same, same legacy mindset on, 
on legacy mindset and infrastructure um, that is built here in the states i'm thinking about responding to wildfires so i don't know how many aircraft you have in the country and how you guys utilize them but i i think i'll say this much not knowing exactly what's there yeah. I don't think anyone could argue with argue against the idea that responding to fires more quickly, suppressing them more quickly has its advantages. You know, you think of the, the, the analog I like to talk to people about when I'm trying to explain this is, you know, until, until, until the 80s or so, you know, a lot of commercial large buildings didn't have sp- uh, fire sprinklers in them. And you go into any, any building, you know, any commercial building or hotel here in the United States now or any office building, and they all have to be water sprinklers, right? So they all have these little discs in the ceiling. And and so what I tell people is that prior to these sprinklers, you know, you had a, the way that we responded to the structure fires was you called the 911 in the fire truck that's two miles from your from the building has a one and a half million dollar fire truck in it that, you know, holds 3,500 gallons of water and can pump 350 gallons per while of water per minute. You'd call them, they'd be there in five to 10 minutes, and hopefully they'd be in your office in another five or 10 minutes. And most likely, that conference room you're sitting in, as they tell the story, would probably be burnt to a crisp. If we couldn't get out, we might have been killed, or we might have a lot of smoke damage done to our lungs. But you know that's the way that I think of the Forest Service is reacting these days. But I often now use this example, I tell people to look up to the ceiling, you see those five or six discs in the ceiling, Think of those as fire bosses or any other fast response, you know, smaller, less expensive type of aircraft, and they're sitting there ready to go. And the minute they sense fire, you respond within 30 seconds or 45 seconds with a little water sprinkler, which is pumping out, you know, anywhere from, you know, five gallons, maybe eight gallons per minute at most. You know, it, it, it just isn't as sexy as the big expensive fire truck down the street. It's a lot less expensive and it puts out a lot less water, but it does so quickly and it does so efficiently. And so in that same conference room, the fire started on the conference table, that sprinkler head would probably contain it within, you know, just burning maybe the top of the table. None of us would lose our lives and we wouldn't have a lot of smoke damage to our lungs. So, you know, smaller, less costly, fast attack aircraft getting on a fire quickly versus the old model. I, I just, don't think anyone can argue against that. And yeah. then the money you save in doing so allows you to have the time and the money to do the things that are really going to slow down this threat. And I would mention them, but I'll do it again. You know, prescribe burns, burn things when you want to, when you control it. And then, you know, let's not clear cut the woods here in the United States. There's a thinking that, well, everyone wants, you know, if we let people do the forest thing, they're going to clear cut all the woods. Well, that's we've come a long way from where we were a hundred years ago and thinking about logging in this country, in the United yeah. States, there are ways to appropriately thin forests to make them healthier, but also to take wood product out of those forests and turn them into something that you, you know, building products or other items. And those are the things that are actually going to slow down this threat. I don't think we can stop it, but what can we do to slow it down over time? Yeah, it makes sense. Absolutely. And do you, what, what do you see in sort of future technology and things that you think will, will come out in the future around sort of assisting further? You know, I try to do quite a bit of thinking around this one. You know, there, there, there will be a time in the future where drones will be part of the aerial firefighting complex. 
they are they'll already are part of the reconnaissance efforts here in the United States. So they're not using a lot of them, but you know the obvious the obviously obvious benefits of of drone technology are trying to be applied here. But my my thinking is well, what's been interesting to watch is the ability to um, predict and detect to predict where fire behavior may occur and then you know detect it quickly. There are a lot of interesting technologies that have already been developed or are being developed to do that kind of thing. So where in this state, you know, over the next week, have, have we, has it been hotter than usual? Is it drier than usual? And where we predicted to have storms coming in, lightning storms. So the idea of, okay, this upper right hand, you know, the northeastern side, um, side of Washington state is really, 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 really fire prone. So we should move some assets in that direction. Yeah, Fantastic okay. technology there. And the ability now to, to once a fire starts, to, to detect it while it's small, that is also developing really quickly. Where the disconnect seems to be happening is how quickly we respond to it. And I've already talked to yeah. a lot about that with you, so I'm not going to go back to that. But I think the, I think the future of where we should be heading is that, you know, that early detection equipment, and we're looking at this right now, the early detection equipment should be on the aircraft, you know, and, and – <laughs> If I had my druthers, and they do some of this in Spain, actually, with fire bosses, they do loaded patrols. They send up two fire bosses at a time on very, very, you know, sort of high risk fire days at the worst part of the day. And they send them up there in, in pairs loaded and they look for they look for smoke while they're floating around, you know, up there for you know three and a half, four hours at a time. When they see smoke, they drop down and they, they you know, they start working the fire right away. I think, you know, if we're if we were to head in a certain direction here in the United States, you put early detection equipment on aircraft like fire bosses. You put them up in the sky, um, sort of on patrols. You combine the the satellite-based capability of predicting where fire season, where fire areas might be at highest risk in the state. Then you put loaded patrols in that part of the state, you know, flying during the day, and with the right detection equipment on those aircraft. You could get to a fire before it gets any larger than, you know, a couple yards very quickly. And you, you knock it down. In, in that case, you could put out a fire with a couple of fire bosses without even having ground crews show up to do so. Yeah, right. So to me, it's it's very yeah. much, you know, we, I, I do think we need to move more towards a military type of response in this country when it comes to fighting fires. I, I visited, the, you know, folks who live in Paradise, California after the campfire last year and, yeah. I, and I, I interviewed a handful of more than a handful of folks and and one woman really caught my attention when she she said you know when is this country going to start thinking about wildfires as a national security risk yeah. our national security threat because if 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 terrorists had had come into paradise in chico california and killed almost 100 people and burned almost 20,000 structures wouldn't our best and brightest military minds, you know, be fighting back? Totally. And I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with it. She hit it right on the head. And I think we need to head that, head in that direction. And I think, you know, it's not just a concept. I think the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle are, are staring right at people's faces. And some states are getting it, and others are, you know, coming a little more slowly. But it's, it is a serious threat, and it is killing people every year. It's destroying properties. It's killing off livestock, and it's also, you know, we, there's, there is a lot of value in the timber in this country. And you know, you burn a tree so badly, you know, you can't harvest that timber. So long-winded, long-winded explanation yeah, to your yeah, question, yeah. but I, I think the technologies out there, the tactics need to change, but it it doesn't 
it's not something that has to be developed to succeed. All the pieces are already there. Yeah, right. In some ways, that's uh, exciting to hear that there's you know this technology that can actually make a significant difference in this, which is which is nice. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it's, it's what it's what's made this you know my my three almost I guess yeah coming up on three years here of being involved in this business in this industry. There's a real tangible problem that that not just the United States is dealing with, but the globe is dealing with now. There are tangible solutions to it, and and everyone agrees that we need to do something about it. And it, it's an exciting and interesting problem to help solve. And I think over the next decade, there'll be a lot of um, progress in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so changing tax now um, and just going back to our sort of our, our core focus usually of what we talk about on, on this podcast. So as a, you know, you've had a lot of experience in, in private equity as, a, as an investor. What, what are the sort of key mm-hmm. things that you look for in sort of when you're, when you're looking to make an investment into a business or to, to acquire a business? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a whole entire uh, uh, extra podcast. You know, it's, you know I've, been, I've, I've, I've invested in a you know, wide variety of different size companies and a wide variety of different industries. And I'm trying to think of what are the consistent themes I'm looking for. You know, oftentimes before, you know, almost every time, you know, we invest in something, uh, whether it's a growth situation or it's a turnaround situation, we'll, we'll do a blind market survey to help us understand how that company is perceived in the marketplace. And we won't ask specifically about that company. We'll ask about it and its competitors. And what I'm hoping to get out of those conversations, you talk to customers and suppliers in that industry, which is some industries, it's easier to do this than others. What you're hoping to find is that with, within those conversations, are there three or four things that that company is either doing very well or is doing, uh, doing poorly, but it's important to the industry that we can build the future success off of that business. So that's a real, you might think I'm trying to wiggle out of the answer to no, the question, right. but yeah. it's, it's oftentimes, you know, I've got to get a sense of what the marketplace thinks about this business and how we would change the strategy going forward. And if that is a, that's a set of facts that we think we can actually get our minds around and solve over a three to six year window, then that is sort of the first step. And from there, you know, it's, it's the people model. It's the it's the structure of the balance sheet. You know, what are the things that we can alter for the better? And and in some cases, you know, oftentimes, sadly enough, the bit you know, an opportunity you can quickly see that there's really it's almost a company that doesn't need to exist. You know, the most important question uh, you always have to ask yourself in in these businesses, especially on the smaller end of the middle market, where they're 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 they don't have sort of a, a global footprint or maybe oftentimes a national footprint is uh, if the company wasn't here tomorrow, would anyone, would anyone care? You know, uh, there are enough competitors out there beating each other up that if one went away, it wouldn't matter. And oftentimes that is the case. And sadly enough, sometimes we've made investments and, and really hadn't gotten that answer correct and find out the, the wrong way. But oftentimes, if you ask yourself that question and you can't come up with a good answer, then you, um, you probably need to move on to the next opportunity. Yeah, okay. That's, that's, that's a good answer. And thinking about sort of founders and entrepreneurs who have started companies, has there been sort of sort of common mistakes that you see founders sort of making? I, I don't have the, the the real experience of doing a doing a startup or you know starting something from scratch. So it, it may be it may be an unfair question for me to answer, but what I know I've seen in the many of the companies that I've um, been part of or we've invested in is, as I mentioned this to you earlier, if you can't get the people part right 
you're, you're, you're probably going to have a, a less likely chance of succeeding. And oftentimes, unfortunately, getting the people part right means letting go of people that you initially thought were going to work out well and, and oftentimes re-replace or upgrade a certain role probably more slowly than we should. And once you've made a decision to move on to let someone go and hire a new person in that position, you almost always look back on that on that decision and say, we probably should have done that a year ago. Yeah. You know, oftentimes it's oftentimes problem employees are the easy ones to figure out. The real challenges are the people who have the right attitudes and they're trying very hard, but the job or the role has just grown well past them over time. And you want them to succeed and you do everything you can to get them to succeed. But oftentimes it's just most likely not going to happen. And so, you know, I, I use a term and I don't use it lightly, but if, if you can't change the people, eventually you need to change the people. Yeah. And, um, you know, you're focused on training and educating a, a person in a role that you really like to see if they can, they can catch up with where the organization's heading. But oftentimes it's just, it doesn't work, to, you know, as well as you'd hope it would. And you do need to move on from that person. And when you do so, you try to do so in the most fair and equitable, equitable way when that person has done everything they can. But that would be something that I'm, I'm guessing is, uh, happens uh, in startups and, yeah, uh, as well as happens in middle market companies and larger companies. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always very hard having to let go of someone. Um, you might like them and you might think they're, you know, they're, they're doing an okay job, but they, the role may have grown as the company has grown. So it's always, always challenging. Yeah, yeah, it, that's the, that's, that, those are the tough ones. You know, those are the ones you lose a lot of sleep over and, and uh, hopefully you're, you're doing the right thing. You always got to do the right thing for the company. If you're, the, if you're an officer or a director of the company, you have a fiduciary duty to do what's right for the business long term. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes it's making hard decisions like that. Yeah, absolutely. So the final question, um, what's, what's your thoughts on the, on the U S economy at the moment and sort of the outlook for 2020? Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of divisiveness in this country, as I'm sure you guys can see yeah. from, from our, from our daily news feeds and that's uncomfortable and it's not fun to watch, but I, I do think, the uh, the underlying fundamentals in the economy here in the states are relatively solid for for 2020. You know, oftentimes um, uh, bad things don't happen in election years, so no one wants to make any drastic moves in any one direction if things are heading in the right direction. You know, I, I think I think we're in, I think we'll be okay for 2020. I think uh, depending on the outcome of the election, uh, you know, next November that that may that may um, turn the outcome one way or the other you know, for 2021, but for 2020, it's, uh, it's an easy prediction for me to make as someone who isn't as well informed, well informed on this as I should be, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an economist. Yeah. I'm not sitting, uh, sitting in Washington, DC making critical decisions, but, um, you know, knock on wood, we will, we will sort of continue to just trundle along like we are now, but it is unfortunate to see the divisiveness, um, you know, that we, we, we are experiencing in Washington, D.C., regardless of what side, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, I think uh, almost every American is, uh, is sort of uh, sick of sick of the daily barrage going back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so, so much for your, your time and uh, all your insights that you've shared. I think um, yeah, a lot of people are going to find this uh, a really interesting podcast to, to listen to. So thanks so much, Brett. Oh, great. Yeah, no, I appreciate you reaching out and um, look forward to hearing it. Never like to hear my own voice, uh, but uh, <laughs> it'll, it'll be interesting to listen to. So, hey, thank you for uh, thanks for the time, Stephen, and uh, happy holidays. And um, 
you know, if you, if, if you or anyone else out there wants to talk more, you know, you know, you can find us through our website. So thank you. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Brett. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you. Take thank care. You. Cheers. This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace. To find a convenient parking space near your home or office. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.